0: Hello there, I'm Justin, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. Today we're going to be taking another look at Walter Ong's Orality and Literacy. Um, A briefer look today, kind of. we're really trying to break this up into small chunks, but today we're going to be taking a look at one small section uh, called Many Scripts, but only one alphabet. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the relevance and importance of the alphabet. Thanks for tuning in, let's get into it. D for dessert, oh, om nom nom. B is for Elmo. F is for frog. Uh, ribbit. G, G is for Grover. Oh, H is for hog. Un-clink. I is for insect. J, jar of K is for kitten. <laughs> L is for lamb. <laughs> M is for Marie. N, N is for noodle. O oh, is for life. Twin who likes to quack. Quack quack quack. R is for Rosita. S is for snack. Mm-hmm. T is for tally. And a tube to blow in. <laughs> U for ukulele. And feet for violin. Whoa. W is for worm wiggling. Uh-oh. X is for xylophone. Y is for you. On page 83 of Orality and Literacy, Walter Ong says, Human beings have been drawing pictures for countless millennia before before this. Uh, this meaning the uh, development of, of the first true script. And various recording devices, or as memory. I don't really know how to say that. Uh, memory aids is kind of, I think, what it's getting at, but I think it's a French term, uh, AIDS mem- Memore had been used by various societies. A notched stick, rows of pebbles, other tallying devices such as the quipu of the Incas, the winter count calendars of the Native American Plains Indians, and so on. But a script is more than a mere memory aid. Even when it is a pictographic, a script is more than pictures. Pictures represent objects. A picture of a man and a horse and a tree of itself says nothing. If a proper code or a set of conventions is supplied, it might, but a code is not picturable unless with the help of another unpicturable code. Codes ultimately have to be explained by something more than pictures, that is, either in words or in a total human context, humanly understood. A script in the sense of true writing, as understood here, does not consist of mere pictures of representations of things, but is a representation of an utterance, of words that someone says or is imagined to say. So this is an important concept that he comes back to a lot in this in this book this idea that words and language are unique language is extremely unique because it is not attempting to recreate something that is visual it is attempting to recreate something that is oral um so words and language uh are are very very different than if you the word t-r-e-e is something extremely different than a drawing of a tree um over history and, and evolution, humans have equated all of those things you know, together, but they're very different, and this idea of memory aids uh, is going to come back a couple of times. Um, so, um continues on the next couple of pages by saying, pictures can serve simply as memory aids, or they can be equipped with a code, enabling them to represent more or less exactly specific words in various grammatical relation to each other. And then he goes through a lot of sort of history, um, sort of... Um, giving examples from all over the world of the way that different languages and different scripts and different different uh, ways of doing things with language have evolved and, and how different cultures have kind of approached and addressed this issue of of their own languages and how those languages uh, have become so important to the evolution of those cultures. Uh, for example, uh, Ong cites um, the... Kangxi dictionary of Chinese in the year eighty seventeen sixteen has forty thousand five hundred and forty five characters in that dictionary. So like characters to write with. Imagine a keyboard. With forty thousand different characters that you could write with, um, no Chinese uh, uh, Walter Ong says no Chinese or a sinologist knows them all or ever did. Few Chinese who write can write all of the spoken Chinese words that they can understand. To become significantly learned in the Chinese writing system normally takes more than twenty years. Such a script is basically time-consuming and elitist. Um, so that's an interesting idea there. You know the way that different languages, different cultures, different different places in the world have all developed their own systems. But what on comes back to, and what is so interesting in this whole piece here, and the thing that he says here is, the most remarkable fact about the alphabet, no doubt, is that it was invented only once. Um, so there's only one alphabet. There's one alphabet. Um, uh, you know, and, and that, that makes sense, you know, that there can only really be one you know, the human vocal cords are only capable of, produ- of producing uh, X number of sounds, right? So there can really only be one alphabet. Um, On continues, it was worked up by a Semitic people or Semitic peoples around the year 1500 BC in the same general geographic area where the first of all scripts appeared, the cuneiform, but two millennia later than the cuneiform. And he cites uh, Deringer there. Um, Every alphabet in the world, Hebrew... Ugaritic, Greek, Roman, Cyrillic, Arabic, Tamil, uh, Malayalman, Korean derives in one way or another from the original Semitic development, though as in uh, Ugaritic and Korean script, the physical design of the letters may not always be related to the Semitic design. So it's an interesting concept, this idea that one alphabet and then it, from that stems all these different sort of variations on, on that one particular alphabet. Um, And then towards the end of this section is where I think is the most interesting thing that we can talk about here and and, and kind of gain some insights from. Ahn goes back to this idea that he's that that keeps echoing through this, this book several times. And he says, quote, Sound, as has earlier been explained, exists only when it is going out of existence. I cannot have all of a word present at once. When I say existence, by the time I get to the tense, the exists is gone. The alphabet... the the physical letters of the alphabet, implies that matters are otherwise, that a word is a thing, not an event, that it is present all at once, and that it can be cut up into little pieces, which can be written forwards and pronounced backwards. P-A-R-T can be pronounced trap. If you put the word part on a sound tape and reverse the tape, you do not get trap, but a completely different sound, neither part nor trap just as a side note here, this is an interesting exercise and something you might want to go play around with. Uh, David Lynch is famous for doing this. Uh, I I think he's definitely a linguistic studies person for sure. But if you go watch his famous show Twin Peaks, there are some characters on that show that speak in this really bizarre uh, backwards language. And the way that he accomplishes that is that he has the characters phonetically pronounce words backwards. So in this example by Ong, if we're taking the word P-A-R-T, the word part, and we pr- were to pr- phonetically pronounce that in reverse. so something along the lines of app. Um, and then so you kind of reverse that word part and you phonetically pronounce it backwards. so to app. And then you reverse, the audio of you speaking the word backwards phonetically, it produces a really weird sensation of that sound. Um, so David Lynch is kind of famous for this. Something you can try, if you have a voice recording app that allows you to do re- reverse audio, um, try that. Go record a sound like um, uh, like the phrase, let's rock, for example. Um, if you were to pronounce that phonetically backwards, it would sound something like, Kar-stel. and then if you reverse that sound, you could even do it now on the podcast. I'll say it one more time if you just want to play this podcast backwards somehow. stell." If you reverse that, it says, let's rock in that really weird David Lynch kind of uh, Black Lodge voice that he uses in, in a lot of his TV stuff. So just this interesting kind of touch there. Um, maybe David Lynch read this book and uh, got the idea from this little section. Um, on continues to say, a picture, for example, of a bird does not reduce sound to space. Now, this is an interesting concept. We talked about this a little bit in a previous episode. So, drawing a picture of a bird does not, does not capture a sound in a moment. That's not enough. Uh, for it represents an object. That picture of the bird represents the object of the bird, not a word. It will be the equivalent of any number of words, depending on the language used to interpret it. Asiu, pario, pararo, vogel, se, tori, bird. All script represents words, in some way, things. Uh, quiescent, ob- quiescent objects in mobile marks for assimilation by vision. Rebuses, or phonograms which occur irregularly in some pictographic writing, represent the sound of one word by the picture of another. Though, it, for, for example, if you wanted to say, like, the sole of a foot, meaning uh, the sole is paired with the body, um, in the fictitious example above, but the rebus phonogram, though it may represent several things, is still a picture of one of the things it represents. The alphabet, though it probably derives from pictograms, has lost all connections with things as things. The alphabet represents sound itself as a thing, transforming the evanescent world of sound to the quiescent, quasi-permanent world of space. I think that's the most important part, right? That's what the alphabet has done, um, for better or for worse. It's transformed our sense of sound uh, into our sense of vision um, in, taking something that is oral and moving it into something that is spatial and phys- physical. Um, it's an interesting kind of thinking about encoding and decoding, right? Um, we've encoded sound into this other medium so that we can understand it visually and, and perhaps mentally. Um, Ang also goes into this section where he discusses the way that um, in the year 1443, uh, King Sejong of the Yi Dynasty in Korea decreed that Korea would no longer use the Chinese alphabet and wanted to devise its own alphabet. And it's just an interesting story about the evolution of, of the Korean language and alphabet and the way that this king um, demanded that his, his country... Uh, create their own language separate from Chinese. And what ended up happening was Chinese was continued to be used as sort of like the serious scholarly uh, language that people would use. Um, And then the Korean language uh, up until more recently, you know, in in the history of Korea was sort of this more vulgarized uh, vernacular language that was sort of considered unscholarly and more practical. Um, And so it's just an interesting tracing of, of language here in this section and the way that, you know, this idea that our alphabet... Is something that that kind of connects us uh, in a way as as human beings, you know, in, just as a as a race um, and as a species, uh, and we've all kind of taken it into different directions and done different things with it, but it all comes back to the, the one the one idea of our desire and our wish to move our culture our minds our brains into this sort of more physical space and and all the all the lovely affordances that have come with that shift right the idea of being able to capture copious amounts of information and data and write it all down and share it more easily and understand things in a different way and interpret and not have to use our brains to remember everything all the time going back to ang's memory aid idea right Uh, language is not just serving that purpose it does so much more and and allows human expansion um it allows us to to think more it allows us our minds to 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 be opened up a little bit and to evolve in some kind of interesting ways and so i think there's a lot of interesting stuff in this little one little couple of pages here of the text and uh you know the thought that that language is it's it's an what it tries to do is, is kind of capture sound in a moment and capture sound in a, in a visual, in a visual space. But it just, it just can't seem to do that. And it never really, it's not, that's not the aim of it. It's, it's, you can't ever do that. Sound, sound is, is an event. It's not a thing. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not an object. Whereas, whereas words represent, uh, whereas or pictures, for example, represent objects, uh, language attempts to represent the, the sound. Um, so it's an interesting thing to think about it. Maybe I'm still trying to wrap my head around that idea just a little bit, too. I'll probably process that a bit after the episode is over. But I would love to hear your thoughts. Feel free to message in this podcast. I know this is a kind of a shorter episode today. Um, but, you know, what do you think about this idea that uh, language is, is sort of an attempt to capture sound and an attempt to um, encode our oral world into something that is visual? And have we succeeded at that? Does language serve its purpose? Um, does it do that? And maybe you know something about languages and other cultures and how they work, and, and, and I would love to hear those thoughts too. So please feel free to call in. Um, thanks for tuning in to our brief discussion today of orality and literacy, and uh, I will see you on the next episode of The Pickup Line. Until next time.